Liz McKee, Teresa Holland, Anne Walsh, Angela Nelson, Mary Delaney, Clep Mulvena, Marion Freel, Anne Doherty, Brenda Casson. Brenda was the only girl outside of Belfast. She was from Armagh, who was in turn in Armagh. Margaret Shannon, Kate White, Bridge McPhillips, Lillian Kelly, Anne-Marie McWilliams, Evelyn Gilroy, Mary Kennedy, Geraldine O'Neill, Geraldine McCann, Julia Trainer, Maya Hennessy, Kate Finnegan, Margaret Barr, Annette Kennedy, Roisin O'Reilly, Deirdre Flynn, Mary Robinson, Maria Tigard, Madge McConville, Jerry Cavanagh, Claire Delaney, Geraldine Taylor, Jean Delaney, Nula Tully, Eileen Delaney, and Rosalind Watson. That was me. Hello there, you are very welcome to Over the Wire, the podcast from the Anderson's Town News and BelfastMedia.com. If this is your first time joining us, I'm James McCarthy and we are marking 50 years of the Anderson's Town News with a podcast looking back at the stories and the people that we have covered over the last five decades. This week we are going back to look at the policy of internment and in particular the treatment of women who were interned during Operation Demetrius. I'm delighted to say that I'm joined this week by Rosaline Walsh, who was one of the first women to be interned in Ormagh Jail. Rosaline, you're very welcome to the podcast. How are you keeping? Thank you. Keeping well. My name then was Rosaline Watson. Uh People would recognise me from that. Uh And now, Rosaline, whenever the policy of internment was introduced on the 9th of August in 1971, this was really the first time for many families that women became the head of the household. During this period, we obviously saw women at the forefront of the likes of the rent and rate strike. They were forming street committees, speaking on political platforms. But while I've no doubt that there were women who were politically active before the policy of internment was introduced, would it be fair to say that this confidence and sense of agency that came with having to take over the running of the household drove many more women to become politically active? Well, what I I believe happened at that time was... Previous to internment, Maura Drum came on the scene Mm -hmm. and Maura Drum actually took women from the kitchen um, at home pre-internment. Every day was sort of laid out in the same. Dinner time was the same. After the trouble started and in particular internment, dinner time was never the same. Um, When Maura Drum came on the scene it was like she was born when no one else um realized she'd been born she came out of the kitchen she took women with her and women felt justified um to do so dinner time you could have been out banging the bin lids or out protesting about someone's house being raided or someone being arrested it was an exciting time for women. Uh, Previous to that, women weren't even allowed in bars. So everything changed for women. Some women said at that time, the pill changed everything. Others said feminism. At that time, I was a, a a young girl and we'd never heard of feminism. What changed it for us was the likes of Maura Drum and then other women joining in 
and then we became part of that that brigade as such that um went out and did all the protesting and then we were into other things mm -hmm. so it was an exciting time for women in the north of ireland uh -huh. and of course joined by some women in the south mm -hmm. and it was almost a year and a half later after the policy of internment was introduced then that we saw liz uh, maskey become the first female attorney do you think that the british government were initially reluctant to intern women without trial due to the political and PR implications that that would have? Well, I I think it was because of the PR implications. Uh, men were being interned. And as everybody knows, that was arrest without trial. You weren't specifically uh, charged with anything until for a PR exercise, there was such a big outcry worldwide that the British decided, oh, we'll have to make out we're putting these people before a court and we are charging them with things. So they brought in a commissioner, different commissioners, uh, to make it look good. But what it was, was uh, kangaroo courts. It was nothing more than that. Mm -hmm. And when Liz was arrested, uh, the, the Brits realised that at this stage, women had really taken over uh, from protesting to being active within the IRA and coming them on. Mm -hmm. So that was the, the start of the clampdown on women. They were taking a chance uh, arresting the women, but it was a chance that they felt they had to take. Mm -hmm. And now... Your father had been interned when he was younger. I'm sure that he had told you of his experience, but how did that then prepare you for your own time within the prison? Well, I remember my father didn't really speak a lot, you know, about that time. My father was in the same time as Tom Williams. And Tom Williams and my father's brother, Thomas, were very close friends. Thomas died uh, of TB. Tom Williams sent my father a letter, a smuggled note at the time, and it, he didn't get out on parole. Then his father died again. He didn't get out on parole. They had one visit a month then, and it was pretty grim. They only got enough food to keep them alive. And I remember my, my daddy saying, in the winter, it was great because there were so many mice that they lay on top of the beds and you didn't move to chase the mice away because they were keeping you warm. So the thought of going to prison was was pretty grim mm -hmm. and I wasn't disappointed. <laughs> and now I understand that your two brothers had also been interned while you were in London working with the Legion of Mary. How did that impact upon your family then? Oh, it was really, really terrible. It was an awful time. But again, I have to say, in 1965, my brother, Sean, he was 17 at the time. He was arrested and charged with IRA membership. He was with five other men. Joe McCann was one. Uh, Sean Murphy was another. Uh, Henry O'Neill and... Uh, fella Kearney, I can't remember his first name, 
Um, they're all dead now. But so that was an introduction to going up to visit the prison. Uh, they did, they were sentenced to a year's imprisonment for membership. And they were kept at the time in Crumlin Road Prison. So we we had that background and my mother all her life had visited uh, different prisons uh, for up seeing my father and then up seeing my brother and then the three of us. So it was really hard times, um, not so much for the prisoner, for the family, what they had to go through. Mm -hmm. So I was well prepared. And when you were first arrested then, what was going through your mind? Oh, God. <clears throat> when I was first arrested, um, I was walking from Grantia to the Glen Road. And all I heard was two, two jeeps screech to a halt. And I was assaulted. I was grabbed, dragged and thrown up against the, the wall of a house. And... I heard one of the, the Brits radio through, it is her, we've got her. Um, and I was whizzed round then. I was actually thrown into the back of the Jeep and brought to Fort Mona. And I do recall when I was thrown into the Jeep, I was wearing my sister's new summer suit and part of it was a mini skirt. Mini skirts were all the go. And when I was being thrown into the Jeep, all I could think was, oh, God, I hope nobody saw my knickers there. <laughs> and that's the way we thought, you know, in, at that time, 1973, wow. it was a beautiful August evening. And then in, it was my third time in Fort Mona and the... The constant there was the the same special branch always interrogated me. And he looked very like uh, your man out of university challenge then, Basper, uh, what was his name? Jasper or Basper something going. Um, and he came in and he said, got you at last. And I remember he tried to break his pencil and threw it at me. And um, after that, I was there several hours, then brought to uh, Springfield Road barracks. And that was a terrible experience. It was a dull, dark place. And I'm pretty certain it was round about the time... Uh, Again, I can't remember his name, though I knew him well. Uh, Sean Moore was thrown from a window in Springfield Road barracks. And the fellas, you weren't allowed to speak. We were in like, it must have been where they, they kept the armoured cars. It was dull and cold and they were all standing spread eagle against the wall and they made me stand against the wall as well, but I kept standing back from the wall and then they would come push me back into it. Uh, they, I don't think they actually interrogated me there. And then I was whizzed down to, through the night to uh, Town Hall Street. And that, on the way to Town Hall Street, it was a terrible experience. They took me the long way 
and how I know it was the long way was when we got to the corner of the Springfield Road, they turned right. Further down the road, they turned left, and I presumed that was Donegal Road. When we got to Sandy Road, they stopped. They grinded to a halt, and the Brit faced me. I was down at the door, and he was sitting facing me at the door. He booted the two back doors opened, and I looked across the road, and there were about five men standing outside a bar, and the bar was all lit up, and it was decked with Union Jacks. So the, the five men appeared to be arguing. They stopped and started to walk over towards the Jeep. On their way over, one of the Brits said to me, we're going to throw you out here in Sandy Row. And I froze with fear because I knew they knew what that meant. And I also knew what that meant. I didn't know what to do, whether to jump out at that moment and run, but I I didn't know where to run, so I just stayed. Then the next thing, they screeched off again, leaving the five men stirring after the, the jeep. Then we got into Town Hall Street. We were brought in the back way. I'd never heard of Town Hall Street. as I didn't know where Town Hall Street was, but we went into Town Hall Street. It was pretty cramped and it was it was covered in Brits and RUC men. The reception area was quite small and the Brits were all talking and laughing as if it was a party. And these were their mates and they hadn't seen them in a while. They just seemed to be talking ordinary. Then an RUC man came over to me. I was seated beside the desk. Behind the desk, there was an RUC man taking my details from a Brit. I was seated on an ordinary seat and he started to shout into my face to stand to attention as he spoke. I refused. I just sat staring across the room at nothing. And then his screeching got louder and louder and he was getting annoyed. The Brits and the cops all laughed. They thought it was funny. But during this time, I, I sort of noticed that the man behind the desk, um, he's, he kept writing. He wasn't taking any notice of them. And I heard someone call him George. And anyway, as time went on, uh, it could have been a few hours later, I'm not sure. Because when you're in a situation like that, uh, time sort of disappears. You, you're not conscious of time. So anyway, George came over to me. He came from behind the desk and said, I've been instructed to bring you down to the dungeons for the night. And he brought me down. He had these large keys and he opened the door and we went down very steep concrete steps there was two cells at the bottom. He told me they'd been busy all evening. There was five men in one cell and I could have the other to myself. And he said it like, you know, you're lucky you're getting a cell of your own. But uh, what happened when he opened the door, all I could see was a vent. 
and there were large holes in the vent. And obviously it was from the last century. And all I could think of was, oh my God, no, there's going to be mice and rats running in out of here all night. And the bed, it wasn't actually a bed. It was, again, concrete attached to the floor and a, a bit of wood on the top of it. Even the pillow, the part for the pillow was made of wood as well. And it was really, really terrible. I was there three nights. And then on the Monday night, that was Friday night, on the Monday night, very late, I was brought to Armagh. The reason why I was so late was whoever signed my uh, internment papers, my internment papers apparently were already signed before the Friday night and the Secretary of State, I think it was uh, Whitelaw, he was at a wedding and had left instructions not to be disturbed. So they had to wait till he came back to Whitehall. And then it was pretty late by the time the, the papers arrived and a cop and a policewoman brought me in the back of the van uh, to Armagh. And I was quite lucky there as well because the cop woman opened the the door between her and myself in the back. And she said, I leave this door opened so as you can get your last look at the countryside. So all I could think was, oh God, I hope the IRA don't fire a mortar. <laughs> so I was relieved to get to our ma intact. And then when we got to our ma, they weren't going to let me in. It was too late. Um, because when you get to our ma, you have to go through a procedure. Your strip searched, your body's examined, and you have to have a bath. And uh, your hair has to be washed, and you have to put on stuff for lice, all this. So it was so late, they, they wouldn't do the bath which I was relieved when I found out the following day. I'd escaped that. And then from then on, the first person I met was Mary Dillon. Mary's from Clonard. Mary was a lovely girl. Mary was the adjutant. Eileen Hickey from Beachmind. Eileen was the OC. And I was brought into the company right away. The company was structured. Um, you weren't allowed to lie in bed. You had to get up each morning, uh, clean your cell out, and there would be an inspection. After the inspection by Eileen and some of her staff, uh, you went out to the yard to do, uh, to do training marching, things like that. Uh, and it was pretty good because that kept you active. And there were so many. When I went in, there was over 100 prisoners, most of them young. So that was my introduction to Armagh. And I have to say, though, the loss of freedom is the ultimate punishment for, for nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, that we all received, but 
my time in Armagh wasn't as bad as the other prisoners had experienced beforehand when they had to go on hunger strike to gain political status. And then after I was released, uh, the political status again was removed and the, the uh, prison governor, prison governor when I was there was uh, Mr Cunningham and he was a decent man. But after that, the prison governors uh, were all very, very cruel to the women and the women were treated very badly. And would it be fair to say that a sort of sisterhood developed between the female attorneys? Yes, though, I mean, you go in among over 100 people, you 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 don't know most of them, but because you have a shared experience, uh, certainly the the next day, the day the day you arrive, it was late at night, so I didn't see anyone to the next day, and people come to find out who you are, what you're in, in for, and if you need anything. And the sisterhood really did, um, it, it lasted the whole time. It, there were a wonderful uh, group of girls and Eileen Hickey, the OC, had a tough job because the majority of, of girls were young, plenty of energy, and I'm sure it must have been hard at times, given what was happening outside, for Eileen to keep control of the prison. Mm-hmm. And, and what, yeah, go ahead. It was tough times, you know. The I was only in <clears throat> over a week when Jim Bryson and Patrick Mulvena. Uh, Patrick Mulvena was shot dead. Jim Bryson was shot and died two weeks later. But Patrick Mulvena's sister, Colette Mulvena, was in Armagh. And the experience we all experienced was it was very, very late at night. I've no idea what time. I know it was dark outside, maybe into the early hours. And we heard... You, you know, the cells are so quiet after midnight. You hear every footstep, every time a screw's walking up uh, the wing, you, you hear them. So that night we heard several different footsteps and they seemed to echo. So right away, most of us got up to our the spy hole to listen. And we heard a door opening. And then the next thing, a loud, loud cry. So everybody automatically knew somebody had got bad news. And then it wasn't long before Father Murray left and the screws left. And we found out it was Clet's brother. And that was a, a very sad time. And again, that bonded everyone, you know, because... Most may not have known uh, Patrick Mulvena, but we all empathised. We all felt uh, brokenhearted for for Colette. We had heard earlier on the news uh, about the incident at the Bullring up in Ballamurphy. And I think it clicked with most that, you know, this was a a relation of someone, you know, in Armagh. Mm-hmm. 
So things like that happened. And as I say, they, the bond and the sisterhood was all, always remained there. Mm-hmm. And while in prison, you developed your poetry and wrote some on the yes. walls of your cell. How did the screws react to that then? Well, the thing was, I always wrote poetry. And uh, the first poem I wrote when I got into Armagh was about the screw, about uh, the RUC man, George, um, which in my play, I went into details about how humane he was to me. Um, so that was the first one, but I then every day I was writing other poems on the wall. George and the Terrorist. His name was George. He was a good man. She thanked him with a prayer. And as he wrote her name, she could hear the others swear. Terrorist bastard Finian her. We should have thrown her out in Sandy Row. And still, he wrote her name, the inoffensive player in the game. Different and yet the same, history was theirs to blame. The hours to come were filled with fear. Sexual vulgarity seemed the norm in the vocabulary of the Royal Ulster Constabulary. So she sat and turned herself off like Christmas tree lights on a Christmas day, the silent player reluctant to play. And still, George was a good man. She saw him for what he was. The uniform didn't matter. It disappeared when he spoke. The thing was, you weren't allowed to write on your wall. Uh, No one was. In fact, Eileen Hickey, if anyone wrote anything on their wall, uh, a slogan or anything, they were told to wipe it out. But the screws never passed remarks. And I think they saw, and Eileen as well, came in and read the poetry and... They saw it as works of art. They saw it for what it was and nobody ever mentioned having to wipe it off. Eventually I had had the poems on the ceiling, every pick of the three walls were, were uh, covered in my poetry. And in fact, now in my house, uh, I have it on two of my walls as well, so. And obviously, since you're released, then you've continued to write poetry, if you say, and you obviously mentioned your play there, which was yes. performed as part of Fela this year in The Felons. Um, do you feel that this helps you then reflect on what you'd went through um, during your time in prison? Well, the lucky thing about my time in prison was I kept all my letters and cards and, you know, things um, so I I had my own research already done. I when I started writing the play, um, which was my I think it's the thirty eighth play. Uh, when I started writing, I went through. It took me a couple of weeks to go through everything, 
and sort them out chronologically uh, because the play, I was interned 13 months and two weeks. So I, I did the play in months. Every month something happened. Um, you know, every single month there was something outside happening. So uh, I had all the memories and then the memories were awakened again and everything felt as it did then at the the time. There didn't seem to be much much of a difference. So it's been, what, 50, I think it's 50, 48 years, mm -hmm. you know. And in fact, it got some of the poetry was published by the Andy Town News in 73 or 74 while I was in prison. Mm -hmm. And well, I'm afraid that is all we have time for, Rosie. Oh, thank you once again for coming on to the podcast. And a big thank you to each and all of you for listening along at home. Until next time, Slanagus Bannacht. To Willie Whitelaw. So you think you can change me, rearrange me, my beliefs, steal my mind, take my time, lock me in this cell? You fool, you can't see, I have a mind, strong and fine, one united with my flesh. You'll never change me, rearrange me, my beliefs steal my mind, and all you've taken is my time. <laughs>